The following broadcast is released under a Creative Commons license. I believe in Jesus Christ, the only Son of God. I believe He lived and died, and that He rose again. I believe and trust in Him. Ascended into hell, Christ our living head will one day come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe and trust in Him. I will trust in my Redeemer, sing of His love. That lasts forever Though His hope and sure salvation I will trust in Him Though the world falls around me I rest and know that He has found me Christ the rock is my Welcome all to Pastor Yeshua. You've been listening to Creed by Richard Jensen from his album, Order of Service. By way of introduction, pastor is an acrostic which stands for preaching all salvation through one Redeemer. Our Redeemer, Yeshua, Jesus, is the Hebrew name for the Lord. It means Yahweh, the Lord, is salvation. Translated from Hebrew into the Greek language, the name Yeshua becomes Jesus. The English transliteration for Jesus is Jesus. This program deals with apologetics, questions on and about God, the Bible, and the Christian faith. I take questions and seek by Scripture to give answers and encouragement for everyone, including the tough-minded living in today's skeptical society. And now, let's join Pastor Yeshua. Welcome to Pastor Yeshua. In this episode, and by God's grace, episodes to follow, we revisit a popular topic wherein we continue to look at various apparent, supposed Bible contradictions presented by atheists, skeptics, and humanists. As before, we will examine them against what the Bible says in context, according to proper exegesis, using the languages in question, correct grammar, the culture of the day, and, most importantly, the prism of spiritual discernment given by God to those who truly desire to understand his revelation of himself and his relationship to man. As a prelude to answering any apparent Bible contradictions, if you, as a listener, have not done so already, listening to the introductory episode regarding questions about contradictions will be an indispensable prologue to fully understanding, or more importantly, 
answering any question or apparent contradiction which exists. Therefore, I will have to rely from this point forward on the listener to faithfully adopt the biblical posture of the Berean Bible student who is willing and able to do their own respective homework in order to avoid the pitfalls inherent from failing to do so. For our next randomly selected question and apparent contradiction, Mr. Ash asks, When is Jesus supposed to return? In order to construct this supposed contradiction, Mr. Ash reads the following verses. Matthew chapter 24, verse 30 and 31. Quote, And then shall appear the Son of Man in heaven, and then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn, as they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he shall send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they shall gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other." Unquote. Mr. Ash continues down to verse 34 of the same chapter, which says, quote, Verily I say unto you, This generation shall not pass, till all these things be fulfilled." Unquote. Having read this, Mr. Ash concludes several things. Number one, quote, These things, unquote, which Jesus says will happen, will, quote, happen soon within months or years, not centuries, unquote. Two, the Christian answer that, quote, these things, unquote, refers to the destruction of the temple doesn't work. Three, more than one generation has passed, therefore, Jesus made a mistake. So, let's address these questions. Let's start with numbers three and four. To begin with, number four. More than one generation has passed, therefore, Jesus made a mistake. Answer. Jesus never said, quote, one, unquote, generation. Jesus said, quote, this generation, unquote. So we need to establish which generation to whom Jesus is referring to. Once we then establish which generation Jesus is referring to, we can then debate exactly how long is a generation. Finally, once we know which generation and how long a generation is, then we can debate whether that generation has in fact come or passed by without Jesus returning or not. Number three, Jesus's quote-unquote generation has come and gone, and Jesus did not return, therefore Jesus was wrong. Answer, verse 34 does not say, quote, Jesus's generation, unquote. 
verse 34 says, quote, this generation, unquote. Mr. Ash assumes that Jesus is referring to his immediate audience as the ones who qualify as, quote, this generation, unquote. However, it is just as grammatically correct to say that, quote, this generation, unquote, can and does refer to whatever generation exists in the future at which time that generation experiences what Jesus predicts in verse 29 immediately preceding what Mr. Ash quotes. Namely, quote, immediately after the tribulation of those days shall the sun be darkened and the moon shall not give her light and the stars shall fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens shall be shaken, unquote. Likewise, verses 32 and 33 also give context to verse 34. So let's look at these three together. Quote, now learn a parable of the fig tree. When his branch is yet tender and putteth forth leaves, ye know that summer is nigh. So likewise, when ye shall see all these things, know that it is near, even at the doors. Verily I say unto you, this generation shall not pass till all these things be fulfilled, unquote. So here, the generation to which Jesus is referring is yet future at a time when various signs, such as the sun being darkened, the moon not giving its light, the stars falling from heaven, etc. Jesus then likens these events to a fig tree bearing leaves as a sign that summer is near. Whenever this generation exists and sees these things, this generation will not pass without seeing the return of Christ. Question number one, quote, these things, unquote, which Jesus says will happen, will, quote, happen soon within months or years, not centuries, unquote. Answer, Jesus never uses the word, quote, soon, unquote, in any of these verses. Jesus says that when that generation comes to whom this prophecy is given, that that generation who sees these things will know that his coming is, quote, unquote, near. However, in any case, then, now, or later, both the word quote-unquote soon and quote-unquote near are relative terms, and there is absolutely no basis on which to affix any length of time to when this prophecy will begin. We could conceivably have years, decades, and even centuries elapse until, quote, this generation, unquote, arrives in history to which Jesus is referring. Question number two. 
The Christian answer that, quote, these things, unquote, refers to the destruction of the temple doesn't work. Answer, Mr. Ash is being intentionally dishonest here. The only group calling themselves, quote, unquote, Christian, who theorize that the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D., partially or completely, fulfills Jesus' return, are partial or complete preterists. However, Mr. Ash should be fully aware that preterism is not the majority view of eschatology to which mainstream Christians subscribe. In fact, Mr. Ash should well be aware that the majority of mainstream Christians agree with Mr. Ash in his assessment of the problems for preterists. One can only wonder as to why Mr. Ash chooses to pick a minority view to present as a red herring to which he can then pretend that there are no competing views and ignore those so as to make it seem that there are no answers to his supposed contradiction. Mainstream Christianity has several eschatological views. In more than one of them, it should be noted that while Jesus did predict the fall of the temple in 70 AD, a majority of Christians do not hold to the view that the Bible supports the view that the fall of the temple represented the end of the world, the return of Jesus, or a completed fulfillment of what Jesus was referring to in the above verses. Mr. Ash then goes on to quote the next verse as another supposed example of a contradiction. Matthew chapter 10, verse 23, quote, But when they persecute you in this city, flee ye into another. For verily I say unto you, ye shall not have gone over the cities of Israel till the Son of Man be come, unquote. Also, Matthew chapter 16, verse 28, quote, Verily I say unto you, there shall be some standing here which shall not taste of death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom." Unquote. Once again, in both examples, Mr. Ash commits the error of false equivocation by assuming that in both cases Jesus is referring to his second coming. Since in both cases Jesus has not yet returned in his second coming, we can conclude that either Jesus lied or Jesus was mistaken and therefore Jesus isn't divine. The Bible is an error and God doesn't exist. In the first case, Mr. Ash reasons this because at the time Jesus is talking, every city in Israel had not been covered, and currently every city in Israel has been covered with the news of the gospel, yet Jesus has not returned. In the second case, everyone who Jesus was talking to at that time is long dead and Jesus has not returned. 
Either way, Jesus has not returned, so there is a supposed contradiction. But the question is, has Mr. Ash made the correct assumption? Short answer, no. In the first instance of Matthew chapter 10, verse 23, which says, quote, But when they persecute you in this city, flee ye into another. For verily I say unto you, ye shall not have gone over the cities of Israel till the Son of Man be come, unquote. In this verse, in order to fulfill the criteria of Jesus' statement, we need the following elements. Number one, we need one or more of Jesus' disciples and or followers going to one or more of the cities of Israel spreading Jesus' message. Two, we need some level of persecution and or adversity being focused on said disciples slash followers. And three, we need the Son of Man, i.e. Jesus coming. Now, by disclaimer, various scholars have attempted to resolve Mr. Ash's question by various methods. However, in the end, the best way to properly understand the Bible is, as we have said before, by using correct hermeneutical exegetical principles. Put simply, the Bible is the best way to understand the Bible. In this case, if we go to Luke chapter 10, verses 1 through 11, we have all three of the above criteria covered and the answer to Mr. Ash's question is manifestly obvious. Quote, Now, after this, the Lord appointed seventy others and sent them in pairs ahead of him to every city and place where he himself was going to come. Unquote. So here, we find that Jesus, i.e. the Lord, i.e. the Son of Man, i.e. the Messiah, appointed 70 people, i.e. disciples, i.e. followers, and sent them in pairs. Well, where did he send them? Luke chapter 10, verse 8, 10, and 11 tell us, quote, Whatever city you enter, and they receive you, Eat what is set before you, unquote, verse 8. Quote, but whatever city you enter, and they do not receive you, go out into its streets and say, Even the dust of your city, which clings to our feet, we wipe off and protest against you. Yet be sure of this, that the kingdom of God has come near, unquote, verse 10 and 11. So the answer is, Jesus sent these 70 to various cities in Israel. Okay, why did Jesus send them? Luke chapter 10, verse 3 and 9 tell us, quote, And he, I, Jesus, was saying to them, quote, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. 
therefore beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest, unquote. Verse 2, quote, Go, behold, I send you out as lambs in the midst of wolves, unquote. Verse 3, quote, And heal those in it who are sick, and say to them, uh, wait for it, Quote, the kingdom of God has come near you, unquote. Verse 9. So, the answer is Jesus sent the 70 as laborers to preach the message of Jesus and to harvest those whom God had appointed to receive his message and to tell them that, quote, the kingdom of God has come near you, unquote. We are also told that in some cases, people and or cities would receive the 70 and the message Jesus had given them, and in some cases, the people and cities would not receive them, and there would be persecution of the 70 like wolves to sheep, according to verse 3. Finally, we are told that Jesus sent the 70, quote, ahead of him, unquote, to those cities where he himself would eventually be coming during his earthly ministry. Consequently, we see that in context that in Matthew chapter 10, verse 23, Jesus is not referring to his second coming at the end of the world. Jesus is simply referring to the fact that he will be coming and or joining members of the seventy, i.e. his disciples, whom he had sent out to the cities of Israel to spread his message. Further, Jesus would and did come and or join the seventy in those cities where he had sent them before all of the cities of Israel had been covered. Mr. Ash and many others make the error that when Jesus utters the phrase, quote, the kingdom of God has come, unquote, or words to this effect, that the only possible interpretation is Jesus making his second coming. But the fact is, Scripture firmly supports two definitions for the understanding of the, quote, kingdom of God has come, unquote. One, as Mr. Ash correctly pointed out, the kingdom of God has come is a point in time when Jesus makes his second coming and meets out judgment and justice upon the earth. Two, the kingdom of God has come is Jesus establishing and building his church, the outcalled ones from the earth who respond to his voice and message, who follow him and wait for his physical second return. The following verses support the reality and truth of number two in addition to number one. Matthew chapter 12, verse 28, quote, But if I cast out devils by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come unto you, unquote. Quote, now after that, John was put in prison. Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, 
and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye and believe the gospel, unquote. And finally, Luke chapter 17, verse 21, quote, And saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye and believe the gospel, unquote. Thus, as we come to Matthew chapter 16, verse 28, which says, quote, Verily, I say unto you, there be some standing here which shall not taste of death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom, unquote. It is only if we assume that Jesus is referring to his second coming that we see a contradiction since Jesus has not returned to judge the world, and it would be an impossible case to make that those people who were hearing Jesus' above statement are still alive. However, if we make the alternate assumption, as in the case of Luke chapter 10, then it is not only possible but simple to understand that there were those living in Jesus' day who would not suffer death prior to having physically seen Jesus, i.e. the Son of Man, coming in his kingdom as defined by Jesus calling, establishing, and building his church. Thus, in all three cases, there is no contradiction about Jesus' coming or about what was supposed to be fulfilled prior to or at his coming. There is only an inability or unwillingness for Mr. Ash to do proper scholarship and exegetical research of what God's Word says in context. For our next randomly selected question, Mr. Ash asks, Does God dwell in temples or not? In order to construct this supposed contradiction, Mr. Ash quotes the following verses. 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 12 and 16. Quote, And the Lord appeared to Solomon by night, and said unto him, I have heard thy prayer, and have chosen this place to myself for a house of sacrifice, unquote. Verse 16, quote, For now have I chosen and sanctify this house, that my name may be there forever, and my eyes and my heart shall be there perpetually, unquote. Mr. Ash then quotes Acts chapter 7, verse 48, which says, quote, How be it, the Most High dwelleth not in temples made with hands, as saith the prophet, unquote. Here, as so often the case, Mr. Ash has defaulted to an advanced stage of hyperliteralism. Additionally, Mr. Ash has failed to exercise common sense and the proper use of context. From cover to cover, the Bible is replete in its revelation that God the Father, who is the subject of these verses, is spirit. So in the case of 2 Chronicles chapter 7, 
verse 16, God does not have fleshly eyes or a heart. Instead, we have metaphors being used here. What God is revealing is that he is watching. He is being constantly aware with a loving fondness. For example, even today, we have a saying that when we don't want to do something that, quote, our heart isn't in it, unquote. Does this mean that if we do like something, that we have cut out our heart from our chest and placed our physical heart into that thing that we like? No. What about if we say, quote, I'm keeping an eye on you, unquote. Does this mean that we glue our physical eyeball onto somebody's person in order to watch them? No. Both are metaphors. Next, we have context. If instead of isolating bits and pieces of text in order to support a priori bias assumption, we use context and an open mind, we get a very different outcome. Let's pick up the dialogue of 2 Chronicles chapter 7 with verse 17 immediately following where Mr. Ash leaves off. Verse 17, quote, And as for thee, God speaking to Solomon, if thou wilt walk before me as David thy father walked, and do according to all that I have commanded thee, and shalt observe my statutes and my judgments, unquote. Verse 18, quote, Then will I establish the throne of thy kingdom according as I have covenanted with David thy father, saying, There shall not fail a man to be ruler in Israel, unquote. Verse 19, quote, But if ye turn away, and forsake my statutes and my covenants which I have set before you, and shall go and serve other gods and worship them, unquote. Verse 20, quote, Then will I pluck them up by the roots out of my land which I have given them, speaking of Israel, and this house, speaking of the temple, which I have sanctified for my name, will I cast out of my sight, and will make it to be a proverb and a byword among all nations, unquote. Verse 21, quote, And this house, speaking of the temple, which is high, shall be an astonishment to everyone that passes by it, so that he shall say, Why hath the Lord done this unto this land and unto this house, unquote. In other words, the entirety of context within this verse, as well as the entirety of the Bible, makes it clear that God the Father is spirit. God does not dwell exclusively in one place. He is not limited to a geographical location on earth or in a structure of any kind. God is everywhere. Yes, the temple was, and is, and will be a special place for which God has associated his name and his presence. However, 
our opportunity for the blessing to experience God's presence in any place, including the temple, is predicated to a large degree on God's people. Verse 19 through 21 of 2 Chronicles chapter 7 makes it clear that when God's people humble themselves, seek God's face, repent of their sins, turn sincerely to God, then God, in fact, will dwell in his temple and pour out his blessing on us. However, if we rebel, disavow, and disrespect God, then God will rebuke and discipline us in order to bring us to repentance. This being said, we should be aware that we need to step back and look at the larger picture. As you will recall, we have been making the case for quite some time that so much of what God provides in his word is there as a type and a shadow to depict larger substances which exist. In this case, the tabernacle in the wilderness was a forerunner of the temple. God instructed Moses to build the tabernacle after the pattern which God showed him. Thus, the tabernacle and by extension the temple are both representative types and shadows of things which God is revealing regarding eternity or his redemptive plan. To be specific, both the tabernacle and the temple represented the plan of salvation wherein God and man are reconciled and have fellowship. God's desire is to dwell in the tabernacle in the midst of his people and to sanctify them with his Shekinah glory. The various methods found in the tabernacle and temple where man is made clean, i.e. justified, to stand in God's presence, are mirrored in the New Testament by Jesus' propitiatory sacrifice. In the end, those whom God has called and redeemed by his grace and mercy become his temple where his Holy Spirit dwells. This is exactly the case Paul makes in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16. Quote, Know ye not that ye are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you? Unquote. This proper analysis also explains and complements Acts chapter 7, verse 48, quoted by Mr. Ash. Howbeit, the Most High dwelleth not in temples made with hands, as saith the prophet, unquote. So, in the end, there is no contradiction here, only an inability to properly understand and assess God's plan of salvation and then apply those principles to the whole of the Bible so as to understand the types, shadows, and other genres which God uses to reveal himself as well as our relationship to him. Consequently, once again, using a proper biblical world and life view, there are no contradictions here. 
No fundamental assaults which destroy the Christian message. There is only an inability or unwillingness for Mr. Ash to understand what the basic message of the gospel is, along with the unregenerate mind of Mr. Ash, who must, at all costs, deny God in order to justify himself. In all, to date, in this series, we have in each case serious questions posed by various individuals who hold themselves out to be scholars, critical thinkers, intellectuals, and the like who collectively fall under the pseudonym of Mr. Ash. These and others are questions which individually and collectively serve as the basis by which we are intended to come to the conclusion that the Bible is not God's Word, but rather a collection of myths and fables only to be believed by the simple-minded and the gullible. However, in truth, these 54 and a myriad remaining others are nothing more than apparent contradictions which exist and remain largely if not exclusively due in fact to Mr. Ash's inability or unwillingness to do his research, coupled with his unwillingness to open his mind and heart to God and his word. This concludes this episode. Now, if you have any questions about the Bible, God, or the Christian faith, I encourage you to send me an email at pastor underscore Yeshua at yahoo.com. That's P-A-S-T-O-R underscore Y-E-S-H-U-A at yahoo.com. Thank you for listening. Trust in